Sean Ramkunis, and welcome to Music Speaks, the podcast that is dedicated to how music impacts one person's life. I believe that many people have a playlist that makes their life unique through music. Here's a musical quote for today. There's nothing remarkable about it. All one has to do is hit the right keys at the right time, and the instrument plays itself. Johann Sebastian Bach. And I think it's a great segue into introducing my guest for today. My guest today is someone who I've gotten the pleasure to getting to know. He is a personal hero of mine, always finds the right thing to say when the pressure is on. He's a smart, intelligent musician, and is always willing to help those who need it. His name is Dr. Kim Dunnick, who is the Professor Emeritus of Music at Ithaca College. Kim Dunnick did his undergrad degree at Indiana University after which he auditioned into the United States Army Band in Washington, D.C. He then returned to Indiana for a doctoral degree. He taught for five years at Tennessee Tech University in Cookville, Tennessee, and then moved to Ithaca College, where he taught for the next 37 years, retiring in 2018, which was my last year at Ithaca College as an undergrad. He is a recipient of a Dana Fellowship Award for Excellence in Teaching, a glassed clinician, recitalist, a soloist with orchestras and bands on five continents. He adjudicated international competitions in Moscow, Kiev, and Washington, D.C. A former member of the U.S. Army Band Washington, D.C., including the Ceremonial Band, the Herald Trumpets, and the Army Blues. He was also a member of the Knoxville Symphony, the Elmira Symphony, the Brass Wild Quintet. He was also the principal trumpet for 10 years with the Victoria Bach Festival, 16 years with the Scannatils Festival Orchestra in New York, and was principal trumpet of the Cayuga Chamber Orchestra for 37 years. With colleagues Stephen Mock and Diane Burr, he founded the trio Troika, which performed internationally and recorded a frequent soloist last clinician in Russia and Ukraine. He was awarded a medal from the Ukrainian Ministry of Culture in 2010 for his contributions to brass music in Ukraine. His students have been finalists in major competitions, including the winner of the National Trumpet Competition in Washington, D.C. Many of his students are successful public school teachers and university professors and has held positions in professional orchestras and in top U.S. military bands. In addition to performing and teaching activities, Kim has performed and served with the board of directors of the International Trumpet Guild for 24 years and was president from 1997 to 1999 and again from 2011 to 2013. In 2004, he received the Award of Emerit from the ITG, and he's excited to join me on this show today. Music 
Hey, Doc. How you doing? Doing well. And you? I've been busy trying to figure out next year. Um, but I'm so glad you're here. I think it's been uh, too long to have you on the show. And um, I'm really excited to talk to you today. Um, so my first question is, I like to start every interview with this. Uh, how are you staying sane right now through the quarantine? <laughs> well, <clears throat> there's a lot of work on the yard and the house that's getting done that was not done before. But uh, until this past Sunday, my daughter, husband, four-year-old, and one-year-old moved in with us. They escaped New York City, you know, 11 weeks ago. And uh, they just left Sunday to go to uh, her husband's mom's in uh, Baltimore. So okay. they've been... And when you have a four-year-old and a one-year-old in the house, <laughs> there's no problem staying busy or entertained. <laughs> How do you... Um, stay productive during this time of crisis? I'm not sure I am productive. Uh, <laughs> as you know, I retired a few years ago. And yeah. I really haven't found uh, a niche yet that I've gotten into. I've, I've done a lot of things, but I haven't haven't found something to really uh, you know, tie into and, and spend a lot of time with. How do you feel like you're balancing your life right now? Do you feel like you, I mean, like you have said that you're not super productive, but how do you feel like you're balancing life right now with like work and relaxation? I, I think it's okay. I read a lot of books. I've listened to a ton more music than I ever did when I was working. And, uh, you know, the gyms are all closed, which is sort of a bummer. So I've been walking a lot more and trying to do some exercise here at home. Uh, but as far as, as productivity, I've been doing a little bit of writing, but uh, about 90% of that is just uh, memoirs for my kids. I'm, I've been writing some memories of my parents and writing some things that I want the kids to know. Uh, you know, where did that picture on the wall come from? Or uh, don't throw away the Monette trumpet salad, you know, and, and things that... Uh, uh, they're sort of bringing back memories for me, so in a way it's cathartic uh, to do this. So let's go all the way back to the beginning. Uh, who started to inspire you to play music? My mom was a uh, music major and a music teacher for a while. Uh, she didn't make a career of it, but uh, she was a pianist. And uh, she required... Oh, there were three boys in the family. She required all of us to take a minimum of three years of piano before we could get a real instrument. So uh, I was quite happy to pick up the trumpet. I was drawn to it for the same reason that probably everybody is. It plays melody. Hmm. It plays loud. <laughs> so uh, that's really what got me into it. Uh, you know, she had to make me practice. You were required to practice X number of minutes a day. And that was about a year, and after that, she didn't have to make me practice. I just enjoyed it. Hmm. Just, you know, I just wanted to play the horn. Did you ever think about playing a different instrument? Uh, not really. Uh, okay. Guitar, but uh, classical guitar has okay. always interested me. But uh, never as an actual serious instrument. So, 
Okay. If you were going to give your younger self a tip about playing the trumpet, what would you tell your younger self? Yeah, that's a tough one. Uh, you know, I can't think of, of things right or wrong. My, my first trumpet teacher was uh, a guy, you know, he was the county brass guy. He was a horn player. And I think he was a good fellow, and I think I learned a lot from him, but he, he, all he knew in the trumpet world were the Herbert L. Clark solos. So, you know, I was in senior in high school when I discovered, whoa, Haydn wrote a trumpet concerto, Haydn wrote a trumpet concerto, who knew? These are really neat things, you know. Uh, and that's when I started to also uh, work on orchestral excerpts. It was my last year in high school, because I got a a real trumpet teacher, a player who was playing in the South Bend Symphony. Hmm. And uh, he, he made, opened my eyes. But I didn't major in music uh, when I first went to college. Hmm. So I never thought about making a career out of playing the trumpet. Can I ask you what you first majored in before you changed it to trumpet? Yeah, it was unintentional. I went down with nothing in mind. And uh, I had a, a counselor who looked at my scores and uh, he couldn't find, he was going to put me in chemistry for dummies. And I looked at him and said, that's not right. And uh, he looked at my scores again and he said, well, you know, you took this test and you're not on this list. Right. And I said, well, then the test was wrong, you know, or the scoring was wrong because I, you know, I, I, I do well in those things. And finally, he, he sort of discussed it. He turned the paper over and then he glanced at it. And there were about six names on the back of the paper. Yeah. And he said, oh, here's your name. Um, oh, you did very well. You can be in the honors program. So he happened to be a chemistry professor. So he signed me up for the chemistry honors program. I did that for two years, and I just didn't like it. I didn't, I, I didn't like the labs. I didn't like the smell of the acetone. <laughs> the honors labs were an extra hour long. You would mm. think they would have been an hour shorter, but right. no, they were an extra hour long. And so at that point, if I had dropped out of school if I said, yeah, I got to figure out what I want to do and there's no point in spending money in school. I was going to get drafted. So I thought, well, I don't know what I want to do. What do I like doing? Well, I like playing the trumpet. I'll go over and audition at the music school. Well, at, at that time, the Indiana University was the number one music school in the country. And so they would get people who didn't pass the audition who would start in history or chemistry or whatever thinking, okay, I'll just transfer after my first semester. So they were really leery. And uh, so I went over and played for them and, and they said, uh, wow, you, you can be a performance major. And I said, fine, I'll take one of those. So that's, hmm. that's how that happened. Right. It was totally unintentional. Hmm. After the, uh, when, I, when I graduated, uh, in my last semester, I knew I would get drafted you know, within a month. Right. And, so I went out and auditioned for the service bands. I just had a, a fraternity brother who was living in D.C. at the time. I called him up and said, can I sleep on your couch for a few days? And so I flew out with no appointments and just called people and went and played for them and uh, ended up in the Army band. Uh, could have gone with the, with the Air Force, but they didn't have an opening until the following February, and I was going to get drafted in June or July. So... So I took the army band, and it was a you know a great place to spend three years. Hmm. Uh, wonderful players in the band, uh, a lot of a lot of good good people to meet and hang out with. 
And at some point during those three years, I thought I was, I was teaching at a private school, uh, you know, a few hours a week. And uh, I thought, gee, you know, this is sort of cool. I like this. Maybe I should try to do this. So I got an assistantship, went back to Indiana for the doctorate. Oh, while you're in D.C., you could get a master. The, the Army would essentially pay your way for your master's hmm. if you wanted to do that. So I had done that. And then uh, went back to Indiana for the doctorate, and and that's how it worked out. I've just been very lucky since then. So. so like you mentioned, you started Indiana, then went to the Army, and then you went back to Indiana. How did your musical challenges evolve over time? Do you feel like you were pushed more as you were playing harder rap? And um, can you sort of... Well, for sure. Right. You know, the harder the rap, the more you're pushed. But uh, when I was about to get out of the hour, there was a group of us who went around auditioning for uh, orchestras and such. And uh, the only one of us who actually got a job at that point was uh, Chappie Perry, who then Mm -hmm. had a... I don't know, 30 year career as principal with Indianapolis. Right. But before that, he took a job. He, the, the job he won was in uh, Alabama, I think, which is where Chappie was from. Hmm. And it wasn't even full time, but he took that job and then, uh, like two, three years later, won the Indianapolis audition, which is a great job and was there a long time. Hmm. Uh, but it, that made Ignis auditions, listening to the other players and, and, uh, you know, sometimes making the next round but not not getting a job, right. uh, started me thinking about, is it possible to make a living? But I'd always enjoyed teaching. And so when I was back at Indiana, I started applying for the uh, college jobs. I want to ask you about a specific award that you want me to mention in your bio. You won the Dana Fellowship Award for Excellence in Teaching. Uh, when did you win that award, and how did it feel when you won it? Well, I can't tell you the year I won it, but it was in my first five years at uh, Ithaca because those awards only lasted, you know, five or seven years or something. Sure. Uh, but it was, you know, it's a surprise. You never know somebody nominates you, and, and uh, I don't even know if there's a committee or if the dean does it. I don't know. Uh, but it was, uh, you know, it was quite nice. It was a nice honor, and uh, good to have. So. Right. I want to mention that um, you have students all around the world that have won major competitions, and uh, you have teachers and uh, university teachers and professional orchestra students, and even U.S. military bands. How does it feel to know that you have this legacy, like, beyond your four years at Ithaca College, like, thinking about, like, all these different people that you've able to work with? How, how, is, how does that make you feel? Well, I'm, I'm pretty proud of my students, and uh, I would say that right now, I have some second thoughts, you know, should I have in fact encouraged them to become carpenters or, or uh, financial analysts or something? Because right now, as you know, we're in the middle of this uh, COVID virus mm. and I've talked to a number of them who were, were freelancing and, you know, it takes a while to work in, but they were in that process and doing well. And now there's like in New York city, there's nothing, there, you know, not even a bar mitzvah mm. gig, you know, so, uh, it's it's hard on a lot of them, 
Right. Um, I think they've responded well, at least the ones that I'm that I'm in touch with. Uh, right. Uh, the one there's a trumpet player, Freddie Maxwell, who married a Broadway singer, uh, Annika Larson, hmm. and uh, have two little kids and. Um, they're quarantined, so in their neighborhood, they have a weekly concert from their porch. They have a, you know, some kind of a soundtrack they set up, and then they play. And uh, you can you know, sometimes they pan the neighbors, people sitting in groups far apart, but there'll be a family of three here, a family of five here, and they, you know, just a couple over here and stuff. And it's it's pretty neat. So they responded very well. Right. She's not working at all, of course, because. You know, her show is not is not available. Um, he is uh, he has I think a uh, public school job teaching, and so that helps. But all of his freelancing is gone. Hmm. So I wonder about those. And and while I feel really good, or another student of mine just uh, maybe a year ago, a year and a half ago, won the one of the trumpet positions with the San Francisco Opera. Hmm. Well, you know, what's he doing today? It's just, uh, it's a hard time for music and a hard time for musicians. And I'm, I'm really encouraged to see what people have done. Were you on Matt Brockman's list where he sent you the Copeland Fanfare? I was, yeah, I and did that. It was really creative. That was just terrific. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I can't begin to guess how he did that. I, you know, I don't have that kind of computer uh, skill, but it, that really lifted my spirits a lot. Can I ask you, what do you see for, I mean, I think I asked this to one person and uh, they were kind of overwhelmed by this question, but, um, and I, I think I love talking to you about chamber music. Uh, what do you see for the future of chamber music? I think chamber music will be one of the first things to come back because hmm. you could be in a room, if you're in a large enough room, you could actually play chamber music and still be you know, six feet apart or whatever you feel is important. Um, and though you'd rather be right next to the person when you're doing chamber music, it's uh, it's possible. Right. And I think it's, you know, of course you think of brass quintets, but I think also it's possible uh, with, you know, mixed groups, obviously string quartets, woodwind quintets, but I think you can do mixed groups of a reasonable size, even chamber orchestras probably if you, if you keep the size down. Some chamber orchestras today, you know, they have 40, 50 people. Uh, which to me sort of loses the concept of chamber, but um, you could have a chamber orchestra, including winds, with just, you know, 20, 22 people, something like that. So I think chamber music is is a good place. And I think what I've seen over the last uh, 15 years or so Mm. is people are doing arrangements of things so that groups that you would never have heard of, like our our group trio, trumpet, sax, and piano, Mm playing legit music, not jazz, right. um, there wasn't much literature for that when we started. We had nine or ten pieces written for us. And uh, there's now a, a reasonable uh, you know, library for that group. And I think that's happening a lot with different combinations. I'm seeing uh, YouTubes, or, or I, get, uh, I get sent little clips from people with very odd combinations. It's really interesting the kinds of sounds you can get with that. So I think chamber music is going to happen. What I worry about is, the, especially the schools, both public schools and colleges and, and the private schools, um, how are you going to 
are you going to have a chorus or a band or an orchestra? Hmm. And uh, I think that's going to be problematic. So, so now looking at the virus and now looking at schools working with orchestras, what do you see for the future of, um, of those schools? What do you think they're going to do? I think this fall is going to be a guess. There are going to be, you know, a hundred different approaches to it. Mm-hmm. Some of them will, will work. Some of them will not work. The ones that work won't be totally acceptable, but they'll, they'll work to some extent. We're working on a vaccine, everybody's working on a vaccine, but to me, the, the vaccine would be nice, but viruses can, can mutate, so there's no guarantee there. But what I'm hoping we'll see is a, a cure, some kind of a drug so that if you get COVID, um, you can get a shot and that wipes it out. Right. And whether that drug tends to be plasma or whether it's uh, something that, you know, some chemical concoction or whatever. Um, once that happens, people will lose their fear. Oh, well, if I get, you know, I could get COVID if we do this, but I really want to do this. And if I get it, we have a cure for that now. Right. So I think that's what has to happen before we really can all get in a room again. Mm. But orchestras are talking, our, our, uh, the Cougar Chamber Orchestra uh, manager was talking recently to us about um, you know, how could we do it? And she was curious about what, what a brass instrument's doing this, uh, you know, as far as spreading things. And uh, so it was, uh, they're, they're thinking, they're working on it, and hopefully they'll come up with something. So, hmm. I love talking to you about your travels because you have traveled a lot to Europe. And I remember you always telling me about the trips you make to Russia and and in your bio, you mentioned that um, that you were made, you received an honor from Ukraine uh, that that sort of specified like your journey and your your work relationship in there. Um, let's talk about that a little bit. What what is it like to travel to different countries and to perform? Does it feel different than it is at school? Oh, it's for sure different. Um, I, I like to travel because I like to see how other people live. And when I go play somewhere and they say, well, we can put you in a hotel or you know, you could stay with me. I always say, well, I'll, I'll stay with you because A, it saves them the money of the hotel, but B, I get to see what is it like to live in this guy's city and, and such. So it can be very eye-opening. Hmm. Uh, the first time I did that was in Germany. And I, I spent two days with the second trumpeter in a small class D orchestra. Hmm. And uh, he had a small apartment in the second floor, right downtown. And so we we went back after rehearsal, went back to his uh, apartment and put our stuff. He said, well, what do you want to eat tonight? And I said, well, I want to eat what, what you eat. What would you eat? He said, oh, well, I have this and that. And I said, well, that sounds great. Can I help you fix it? You gave me a funny look. And he says, no. And so he says, come. <laughs> so we went down the stairs, went down the street, hmm. bought bought, you know, like six eggs at this place, bought some meat here and bought some uh, vegetables over here and put it in his refrigerator, which is like the size of our dorm refrigerators. But he tends to get stuff no more than a day in advance. I mean, that's the way that they live over there. Mm-hmm. That was, I guess that was in uh, 1972 or three, probably. So it was a ways away. But uh, I, I have some really vivid memories of being in apartments in in Russia, in England, 
mm. uh, in Germany, etc., and uh, and Ukraine, and it gives you a different perspective and helps you understand. Sometimes when you see some of the happenings in the world, you go, "Well, that makes sense because these people value this above this," mm. and you have a sense of it. So. Right. All right, Doc, we're going to take a little bit of a break, but don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with your playlist. Okay. And we're back with Doc's playlist. And the first song, Doc's playlist, is Hector Berlioz, Symphony Fantastique. So, Doc, my first question is, what makes this a unique piece? Uh, it's a unique piece in the way he uses the sounds of the different instruments and the way he has sort of a, the idea fixé, the, the fixed motif, if you will, True. that tends to come back. What do you enjoy about the, the writing? Uh, well, it's, it's fun writing because it's for two trumpets and two cornets. Okay. And the cornets have... You know, of course, the, the fun parts, the melodic parts, while the trumpets are more uh, trumpet fanfare kind of parts. Right. Um, and so from a brass perspective, it's great fun. Tuba has a wonderful lick in the witch's Sabbath part and such. Right. And uh, obviously trombones and horns are, are featured at times, uh, as are the woodwinds and, of course, strings all throughout. Right. So without any further ado, here is a little bit of the Berlioz Symphony Fantastique. I think we'll stop it there for right now. I know there's so much more we should listen to in this piece, Doc. Um, but I need to ask you this first. Have you performed this work before? Yeah, the reason it's important to me was uh, 
when I was a junior or senior in Indiana, um, I was playing, I split the lead with uh, another fellow in the, uh, one of the top orchestras. And Jean Martineau was a conductor who had been at the, in the Chicago Symphony sure. and was just leaving the symphony. And so he came to Indiana and uh, did a, uh, you know, a week's residency with us. And, or maybe two weeks, I can't really recall. But uh, we played this piece under him. And uh, the other fellow, we also did Daphnis and Chloe. The other fellow got to play first on Daphnis, and I got to play first on this. And uh, it not only was a great piece that, you know, as you're aware, when you sit and rehearse a piece, hmm. you start to hear things you never you never were noticing before when you just listen to it. Right. And right. Uh, so it... It really grew on me as a piece of music. It helped me understand uh, the way certain parts interact. But it also was a nice challenge and just great fun to play. And I, and I think I played it really well. So uh, that gave me a certain amount of confidence playing under this uh, world-renowned conductor mm. and uh, doing well and picking up things he had to say. Can I ask, uh, what is your favorite movement in this p piece of work? I know there's six movements, uh, but which one's your favorite? Well, it's either the March to the Gallows or the Witch's Sabbath. Mm. Yeah. They definitely play really well at Halloween, too, I think, in that way. I think it's a... <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a, I think it's a good piece to think about. Um, so the next piece um, I've had the pleasure to play. Um, unfortunately, that was the semester that you went to take your sabbatical, um, and I think that this piece sort of changed my whole mind about symphonic music in a lot of different ways. But and I, and I know you've performed Mahler on many occasions. Um, what is so unique about performing Mahler? Well, I've, I've only played uh, three of the Mahler symphonies, three okay. of the nine or ten, depending on how you count. Right. But uh, remember, my career was largely in chamber orchestras, oh, okay. except for the Knoxville Symphony. Right, right. So what I, what I remember about playing these symphonies, and, and particularly Mahler one, we played in, in college, it was another Indiana sure. uh, orchestra, uh, was just... It, it sort of grows on you. It, there are so many ways to listen to it, and it really opens your ears, at least it opened my ears, to listening to not just different instruments, different combinations, but also listening to the way the composer uh, drew out pictures with his music. Right. So I, I just really enjoyed Mahler. I, I enjoy all the Mahlers. Uh, and symphony number one is easy to listen to for a number of reasons one of them is that it's not quite as long as some of the others right and i i wanted to tell you a funny story about one of the times i was able to be in rehearsal for this um so you you remember that the first section of the first movement is that the trumpets are off stage right sure so initially it was me matt brockman and peter garris and we were all off stage and so initially when we were thinking, oh, oh, we have time, like we can, we can slowly walk back to our seats. And by the time that we're, we're going all the way around and up the stairs past Nabenhauer and then back into the hall, um, mm -hmm. 
And I remember it was right before I had to play my first lick, the yum bum 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 bum. And as I was playing that, I was basically walking and playing my part at the same time to get into my chair. And I think that that was that was hilarious. Um, so without any further ado, here is Mahler Symphony Number no. One. I think it's so clever how he puts together the first movement. Uh, it's just awesome. Uh, something that I, I wrote down that I think is kind of important to me is that once you leave playing Mahler, you see, you, you, I feel like you, as a trumpet player, you feel a little bit invincible. Um, I'm not sure if you feel the same way, but I, I felt that way after I played the fourth movement of Mahler one. Um, so let me ask you this, how, how do you feel about, how do you feel after playing Mahler? <laughs> uh, well, depending on which one and what part you're playing, you often feel pretty exhausted. <laughs> uh, it's a fun, it's just a, a fun feeling. You're more inside the music when you're playing it than when you're listening to it. Right. And so that's, that's really a special feeling. So the next song that you gave us is Strauss. I hope I say this right. Les Bourgeois Gentle Home Sweet. Is that right? Uh, you know, I don't speak French, but I've heard it. Bourgeois Gentilhomme. Gentilhomme. Okay. Don't use my pronunciation for anything. <laughs> yeah, again, that piece is, is special to me. Uh, it presents a lot of challenges for the trumpet player and... Uh, you, would, you don't play all that much, but right. when you play, it's usually really important stuff. Right. And uh, it was the, the fencing master, the, the really sort of awkward lick, and you have to uh, coordinate with the conductor mm. to come out of it. And then there's the uh, place where you're muted, playing flutter tongue, uh, and that's twice as hard as just playing flutter tongue because you don't have the same... You have more resistance because of the mute, but you're right. supposed to be a sheep out in the field somewhere. And right. uh, what the reason I put this piece up? I've done it many times because again, it is a chamber piece. Sure. And the first time I played it was at Indiana, hmm. and uh, a very famous violin uh, player who'd been concertmaster in in Cleveland for a number of years. Uh, 
George Gingold, uh came to the dress rehearsal, and of course none of us knew he was there, at least maybe the string players did, I certainly didn't. And uh, then he went home and called up my teacher, and my teacher told me this at, at my next lesson. Called up my teacher and said, was that your student, Louis? And, and Louis said, uh, well, yes, it is. And he says, well, that's the best I've ever heard that piece played. Mm. And of course it wasn't. I mean, this guy, he played in the Cleveland Orchestra for a lot of years. You know. But <laughs> right. for him to make a comment like that and, and uh, tell my teacher, who then told it to me, and I could see that at that point, I went up in my teacher's estimation. And uh, I think my lessons got a lot better. There was a lot more focus after that. But uh, it's just a a great fun piece to play. When I knew I was going to retire, I had two or three years left in the orchestra. And not because I had anything to do with the programming, but the orchestra happened to program things that were among my favorites. And this was one of them. So it was, you know, like visiting an old friend. And it was just a lot of fun to do. Right, right. So I wanted to ask this before we jump into the piece. Um, so for those who are non-musical or non, not musical, non-classical listeners, uh, what do you want them to sort of take away from this piece? Um, you have to pick up your horn and play. And, uh, you know, you don't get to warm up or, or do whatever. You just, okay, you're playing now. Here are your notes. Uh, that's a little different than a lot of other types of playing that you have. Right. Uh, so that's one thing to take away. The other is the way sometimes you're blending in with with other groups. Could be could be brass, could be woodwinds, could be string, could be everybody. Sure. But other times, people are playing, but you're doing something pretty different. Right. And you have to figure out how you want to do that. What do you want to say? with those notes, etc. So right. I think what you take away from the piece is, first of all, it's just really fun music. It was written as incidental music for a, for a play, um, but it's held the stage as a, just as a suite. Right. Uh, and there are a lot of different things. So the, the best one, if, if you have control, best one to play is uh, early. Maybe the second piece is called The Fencing Master. So, without any further ado, I'm going to say this wrong again, but here is the Strauss Bourgeois Gentle Home Suite.
So, Doc, my next question that I want to sort of reach out to you is, you have a lot who ah, sorry, you have had a lot of experience with chamber music, especially in chamber orchestras. Can you sort of explain to me and for those who don't necessarily know the difference between a chamber orchestra and a symphony orchestra? Can you sort of explain what the roles you have in a chamber orchestra that are different than one in a symphony orchestra? Well, chamber orchestras first are typically smaller, so right. it's much more difficult for them to try to program a, a Berlioz or a Mahler or something. You'd have to hire all sorts of extra players sure. in addition to more strings just to be heard. So the chamber orchestra tends to do lighter music, if I can use that term, sure. and they're doing orchestra, uh, music of the Baroque, music of Mozart, Haydn, um, Beethoven, uh, you know, a few other composers, and of course there are some contemporary composers as well as composers in the late 19th century that have written nice uh, chamber music and such, so it, it's, uh, it's fun. The role of the trumpet in chamber music is a lot different from the trumpet in a, in a larger orchestra, uh, at least in my mind it is. And so, uh, Jane, my wife, uh, was playing the second trumpet for in the Cuban orchestra for over 30 years. Right. And uh, we always tried to fit into the piece rather than to dominate the piece, mm. except for a few times when it's important for the trumpet to take over a little bit as part of the music. Sure. But it's there's a, a, a mental attitude toward it that I think as a trumpet player, you have to supplement to some extent that desire to be heard, to be the star, to play the loudest and the highest. And you need to say, okay, where does the trumpet fit in right. to this piece? Uh, am I supposed to be a, a supporting player? Do I have the melody here? Uh, you know, et cetera. So it, it's, it's an interesting uh, difference between playing in, a, in a, a full orchestra and playing in a chamber orchestra. And I think you can learn a lot playing in a, in a chamber orchestra, even if your real ambition is to play in, in a full orchestra. Right. But there is marvelous literature for chamber orchestras. And over the years, uh, I can't think of a single season when I didn't hear a piece I didn't know. I mean, we didn't, when we didn't play a piece I didn't know right. that was really a piece and fun to play. Right. So the next piece we're going to check out is the Bach B minor bass. Um, this piece is incredible. The piece is beautiful. It's breathtaking. It has awesome trumpet moments. Um, so I'm sure you've performed this work before. Uh, how hard is it to play this? I'm sure you get exhausted after like, I've heard that, um, I think Chris Coletti was the one that told me that um, the first trumpet player to play this um, uh, went home and then died the day after he performed this work, which I think is crazy. But um, can what? How, how hard is it to play something like this? <laughs> well, it's hard. There, it's an interesting story, and there are a lot of uh, legends that have grown from it. Um, Gottfried Reicha was Bach's best-known trumpet player, but he was not uh, playing in the orchestra that played this piece. It was a different player. I can't remember his name right now. Right. But they were doing a concert by torchlight, hmm. and imagine you're, you know, uh, when seventeen thirty or forty. Uh, right. That was later. Late in Bach's writing career, I think he finished his work. 
and uh, so you're you're still you know 1750 he died so it has to be before then you've got these kerosene torches or some kind of oil torches and that's not just uh, you know mood lighting that's how you're seeing your music right so it had to be reasonably close mm. and the fumes from this must have been horrible <laughs> and the playing is very demanding on on the trumpet not only is it high yeah but goes a long time and often mm. you've played a long stretch of solo stuff and all of a sudden you see repeat <laughs> you got to play it all over again yeah uh, so it was in fact very demanding i remember that the players back then the the trumpet players in in the the, the stock 500 uh, who were the city players and stuff sure were playing not just trumpet but probably also violin and horn and maybe some other instrument and this just happened to be some which they played trumpet, so it it was quite demanding. And the what I understand, you, there are so many stories about this, and a lot of them clearly are not accurate. But um, the the player who did that, in fact, went home, uh, essentially had a heart attack and died. And the conjecture is that uh, breathing those fumes and not getting the the proper oxygen right. and playing these long sustained uh, passages up in the top of the horn. Uh, that that contributed greatly to his heart attack. Sure. Do you think Bach is good at writing parts for trumpet? He's, he's great or he's awful, depending on who you are. <laughs> <laughs> for me, he, he writes great parts, and I just totally enjoy playing, whether it's a, a cantata or Christmas oratorio B minor. Um, it's just it's great fun to do. Yeah. But it's a lot of work, and it's very demanding. The uh, when uh, again back at Indiana, uh, the famous uh, conductor Robert Shaw came to do a B minor mass, right. and they it was sort of a pickup orchestra, but they had, had uh, selected me and and David Brown, who later played uh, with the uh, Toledo Ohio Orchestra for you know twenty five years or so. Right. Um, so David and I were splitting the lead, and after the first rehearsal, Shaw asked to see us. Yeah. And we're going, hmm, this probably isn't good. So we got up to him, and he, he first he complimented us on the playing, and then he said, tell me about these instruments. Well, the piccolo trumpet wasn't that new at the time, but yeah. it wasn't used a lot. And he just loved the sound, that it was it's lighter than a, trying to, to hack through this thing on a C uh, or a D. Right. And... Uh, you can control things a lot more better and you can articulate, I think, quite easily on the piccolo. Sure. So uh, he was delighted with the instrument and seemed to be delighted with our playing. So, hmm. uh, yeah, it's hard. It's really hard. It's made easier by, by the piccolo trumpet. It's made more accurate and you can play, I think, a little longer phrase maybe. Right. Um, but it's, it's good writing. Bach knew what he was doing and the things that he wrote were playable, but man... Those guys had to work at it, I'm sure. <laughs> so without any further ado, here is the Bach B minor mass. Thank you. 
So, Doc, after performing Bach, uh, I was going to ask you the same sort of question that I sort of resembled after Mahler. Um, after playing Bach, you can feel really good about, like, like playing. Because it, it's like, you know, I, I played really hard. I played really long. I've, I've been able to do this for so long. But, um, and I know maybe you, you have performed this work before. Tell me a little bit about, like, how it feels to, like, right after you play it, like, how impassioned do you feel after you you finish playing something like this? Well, it, it's a long song, and when you're done, your first reaction is, I need some rest. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but there is, there's a nice feeling because of the way the trumpet uh, sometimes has the soprano line you're playing with soprano sometimes it's on its own and sometimes it's uh, uh, part of the orchestra but there are three trumpet parts that interact quite nicely and uh, the the top part is just it's a, just a bear right so when you play it and play it well there's a really good feeling that you contributed to a performance of some of the really great music that's available in the world right yeah. I've got a little story about the Brandenburg, which is a, sure. another part, another uh, Bach piece. Right. The, the, one of the highest pieces that Bach wrote as far as range for the trumpet. Sure. So uh, I used to play a Bach festival in Texas in the summers. And uh, after one of those, I was at a, uh, we were judging a competition. In fact, it was in Kiev. And I was walking down the street in between some of the events and Manny Laureano of Minneapolis Symphony was on one side and Vince DiMartino was on the other side. Right. And we were just chatting and they said, so Kim, what was your, you know, how's your game? And I said, well, I played my first Brandenburg. And they said, oh, great, man, how'd it go? And I thought about it for a second. I said, well, it wasn't perfect, but I said, I guess it was not embarrassing. And they both <laughs> said, oh, man, that's great. If any time you can play that piece and not be embarrassed, you've won, you know. And then <laughs> they started talking about their first time. And, and Manny says, yeah, I remember the first time I played that. Right. And he said, I was scared to death and, and I had, you know, quite a few wrong notes. Hmm. And he said, but I, I did get through it. And uh, I, I said, you know, when, when was the first time you played it? He said, well, I was a senior in high school. Right. <laughs> and then Vince says, yeah, I played it my junior year and we did this and this. And I'm going, yeah, okay, so if you were feeling like you... You know, you were some kind of a great player because you just played Brandenburg. <laughs> These guys played it in high school, you know, and, and you uh, you go back to okay, yeah. So I'm I'm not the greatest trumpet player in the world. <laughs> I think it's interesting. I wanted to tell you that I was able to do it for a ch uh, chamber recital, and I need to ask you for my viewers out there because. There's a lot of uh, people who said that I maybe have copped out because I decided to play it on flugelhorn. So I need to ask you, does that count or does it not count? Uh, that's an interesting question because there are people who have claimed over the years it was really written for horn and F down an octave because it's for, uh, you know, tromba in F. Sure. Uh, there are people who thought that it was actually horn and F and down an octave and uh, there are people who say no, it was played on this instrument, or there are all sorts of articles back in the in the late twentieth century on the secret of box trumpet and all this kind of stuff. So, so there's some legitimacy in in playing it on a flugelhorn, right. and of course you're you're taking some things down because the flugelhorn gets real squirrely up in that range <laughs> uh, that we're talking about. Yeah. Um, but there are other people who feel like 
no, that was probably what was intended, and they, they just don't think it was actually written for a trumpet and don't see how it could have been and things like that. Sure. Uh, I think the general thinking today is that, yeah, it's a trumpet piece, and, and there mm. were guys who could handle that right. back in the day. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So, yeah, I think, you know, you, you played it. You know the piece, and you made the music. Mm. And did you, did you do the, uh, the Olympic uh, challenge of playing some of those high notes and, and continuing and such? Um, no. Mm. But right. it's nice music. So there, there were people who've done it on recorder. Oh, okay. Uh, people who've done it on, on different instruments. And, uh, you know, I, obviously I want to hear it on the trumpet. Right, uh, right. Um, you know, it's, so I, I think, sure, you, you played it. But right. you might, if you're talking to trumpet players, you might qualify it. Right. Because it, it's a different, uh, a, a different challenge to play on the trumpet in the right octave and to play on flugelhorn, taking some of the things down. So. Sure. So the last song on Doc's playlist is Richard Price's arrangements for Brass Quintet of Christmas Carols. We're going to be jumping back a few months, which in my eyes sounds like a good idea, so we wouldn't have to be dealing with a lot of what's going on <laughs> right at this crazy moment in time. Um, so uh, I need to start with this. Who is uh, Richard Price? Uh, I know very little about Richard Price. He okay. was in... Okay. It came from a town called Coscob, uh, Connecticut, I believe it was. Oh, okay. And I think he was an arranger for one of the service bands in D.C. Hmm. for a while. Uh, and that's really all I know. Somebody suggested to me he was a horn player. Um, his arrangements were available. It, you know, you could buy them. And he would send you essentially Xerox copies of his own uh, hand. Right. Uh, my recollection, it's been a while, my election, recollection is that they were hand, uh, hand copied parts for the most part. But it, it was just, they were exciting. The arrangements were very clever, very inventive, and very exciting and just incredible fun to play. The first time I heard them was a recording done in uh, at the University of Michigan with uh, when Gitala was there. So Gitala was the, the first trumpet and the girl who's been t teaching at Tennessee for a lot of years and was uh, the most recent president of the International Trumpet Guild, sure. Kathy Leach, is the second player on this right. uh, recording. Right. And I was right. so taken with it, I, I, did, I had to do some research to find Richard Price and get the music from him. Mm -hmm. um, but then we played it every Christmas. Our, our Ithaca Brass used several of them, and the Cayuga Brass Quintet, the Cayuga Orchestra Brass Quintet, uh, would use some of them. And eventually we did a, a fund, it wasn't a CD, it was a cassette at the time. Sure. Uh, we did, I know we probably did 15 of their arrangements, we recorded them and, and sold them, sold the cassettes as uh, fundraisers for the orchestra. Hmm. So without any further ado, here is Richard Price's arrangements for Brass Quintet of Christmas Carols of the Philadelphia Brass.
I think that was perfect timing because at this point my uh, my neighbor turned on his lawnmower. So no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. Uh, no, he has. Um, so let, let's talk about the piece a little bit. What what do you like about his uh, writing? Well, it's as I said, it's a very creative. I mean, there there are dozens of arrangements of Christmas carols for brass quintet. Right. But this is one of the most uh, unique that I've heard. Right. And what you played, you could hear some of the harmonies and some of the way he uses the voices. But he on some of the quicker ones. Uh, what is the one? Wish we wish we, we wish you a Merry Christmas. It's quick. It's just a couple minutes. But there's great double tonguing in the trumpets there, and it's just it's just a hoot to play. It's great fun. And then he has different arrangements of "Come on, Me Faithful" and "Joy to the World" that are just fun to play. Even Tannenbaum is a great different kind of arrangement by him. And these things would have been done back in the '70s, probably. So you know, today. Everybody's looking for a different kind of a, uh, a gimmick or a different kind of a, a niche they can get into or something. But this was back in the 70s, and, and these things were just terrific. And, uh, you know, we've played in, in brass quintets since undergrad college, and uh, we've played a lot of different arrangements of Christmas carols, but his by far stand out. They're just very, very neat. Well, thanks, Doc, for sharing your playlist with me. I have one last question to ask you. Is there anything you would like to share with our listeners before we get going? Well, just to say that as this is recorded, we're, we're having this uh, COVID virus, and it's, uh, it's hard to be a musician because you really want to play with people, and that's just not happening right now. So uh, I applaud those people who are doing... Uh, like Matt Brockman did, putting together this collage and somehow making music from people who are in their own uh, basement and putting it together, making it sound like a real, you know, orchestra kind of group. And I applaud the people like Freddie Maxwell, who's playing concerts off his porch for his own community. Uh, and I think that speaks to the fact that people want to make music, uh, even if you can't be together with a larger group, you, you really want to make some music. And so I, I just, I, I applaud people who are doing that, and I hope that uh, really soon, this is, uh, what, June uh, June 6th, June 4th, somewhere around there, yeah. uh, in 2020, and uh, hopefully in another month or two, we'll be not only having groups together playing, but we'll be able to have audiences there to hear the live music, because there's something about live music that's just really special. Well, thanks, Doc. It's, it's always a pleasure to talk, and um, I'll have to have you back on again. Thanks for inviting me, Shan, uh, Sean. I, I, I appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you, Doc. And you've been listening to Music Speaks, a podcast for lovers of music everywhere. And that's it for me. I'm Sean Ramkunis. And keep listening to what you love.